0: Okay, so as Steve uh, announced earlier, um, we're at number three in our current series of um, talks. And we're still in the early days of the Lord Jesus. And today we are going to be thinking about his childhood um, to start off with. And in particular, we're going to be thinking about his development, which is actually something that we're not told an awful lot about In the scriptures and I'm sure that we all wish or have wished at times that we knew a little bit more about those um, first 30 years of his life. Um, When did he learn to walk and talk? Was that any different from a normal a normal child? Um, What was he like as a toddler? Uh, A boy? A teenager? What was he like as a young man? How much did he know about his identity and his mission at each stage of his uh, growing up. The truth is, we don't know. Not exactly. But there are clues that we have, I think, in um, the Gospels especially. And we're going to look at some of those today in the Gospel of Luke chapter two. So our reading is in Luke chapter two. I'm reading from the NIV version, as always, and we're starting at verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male (coughs) is to be consecrated to the Lord. she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the Lord of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. <coughs> so, we've read this passage many times before, haven't we? Let's look at a little bit of the background detail first, um, starting with verse 22. Now, Luke refers to the purification rites, and these are described back in Leviticus chapter 12, if you're interested. And under Jewish law, Mary was regarded as ceremonially unclean for seven days after she gave birth, and then she would also have to stay at home for another 33 days um, after that, and it was even longer if she gave birth to a a girl, Um, but these were the the, the rules for if she gave birth to a boy. But at the end of that period, um, she was expected to offer a sacrifice for her purification. So this is all just part of the ceremony of the law of Moses, that God gave to Moses. Now that sacrifice would normally include um, involve a lamb, but there was provision in the law for a couple of doves or pigeons to be given instead if the family couldn't afford a lamb. And as we read on this occasion, it was the cheaper option that was um, taken up by Joseph and Murray. And I think that just gives us a little, little glimpse, further glimpse into the social standing of Joseph and Murray. Um, you know, they were humble people. They were poor people that the Lord Jesus, the family that the Lord Jesus chose to be born into. Now, there are actually two separate things going on here. Luke kind of puts them together. It's, it's, sometimes it's, it's not, not so easy to notice if you just read through it quickly. But there's two things going on. There's a the sacrifice for Mary's purification, and there was also a consecration payment. Now that's what's being referred to in verse 23, every firstborn male, whether it be um, a, a human or, a, or an animal, um, had to be consecrated to the Lord, it was regarded as belonging to the Lord, and what that meant in practice was that a payment had to be made, which firstly acknowledged that the firstborn belonged to the Lord, but also gave the opportunity for it to be bought back by the owner or, 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 or parents. Um, In other words, an opportunity for um, the firstborn to be redeemed. And again, you can go back into the Old Testament to find all the regulations to do that. Uh, Numbers 18, it's found. Why is this interesting? Well, it's just, again, another little early insight into the early life of Christ. He was born as a Jew. And therefore, he was born under the law. As Galatians 4 verse 4 says, he was born under the law. So, although he was, is, the eternal Son of God, there were no special privileges when he came into this world. There were no exemptions allowed, you know, bits of the law that he really didn't need to bother with because they were only for sinful people. You know, he had to comply with it all. When God came into this world, he came in under the law and he didn't put himself above it. I think it's also a little interesting twist of the story and we'll leave the background with this little thing just for you to think about and I chewed it over in my mind and I really couldn't find anything interesting or profound to say about it but I just find it's an interesting twist that the one who came to be the great Redeemer of the world first had to be redeemed and the price was five shekels if you look in the Old Testament uh, law the great Redeemer first had to be redeemed and the price was five shekels but it made me wonder actually if there is anything profound or interesting to say beyond that um, to wonder how the Lord Jesus felt as he went through his life clearly he would have known nothing of what was going on at this point um, in his, his uh, he's still a baby um, But I wonder how he felt throughout his life as he complied with aspects of the law and fulfilled other aspects of the ceremonies and the feasts of his people, realising more and more how they all in one way or another, directly or indirectly, all pointed to him and the thing that he had come to do. So that's just background, as I say, to this scene in the temple uh, when two old people uh, came up to Joseph and Mary and said some pretty shocking things. Um, that's my interpretation on, on, the, um, on, on, the, on the verse where it says that they marvelled at what was being said. I think they were just pretty shocked, really, that um, these two strangers knew anything about them or their, their little baby to start with. And, and shocking because Simeon was talking about their child being the saviour of the world you know how shocked murray was when the angel said he was going to save his people from their sins that's why he was going to be called jesus here's simeon saying it's not just his people it's it's every nation it's the gentiles too he enlarged the scope of what was already a terrifying prospect probably for murray and joseph you know to be the parents of this child you know talk about pressure Um, Not realising how much or how little they were going to have to contribute to his preparation for this tremendous role. And also shock because Simeon, in the midst of that wonderful indication of what he would achieve in his life, but also went on to say that the road ahead would involve conflict, judgement, suffering, grief our focus today is on the Lord Jesus, um, but we should just mention Simeon and Anna uh, briefly, uh, because I think there is something for us to learn there. Two devout worshippers of God, we understand, who were waiting patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And a bit like us, they were living in difficult times, and maybe they occasionally had their doubts. Good people have doubts, don't they? We know that from John the Baptist, who even after... He had been completely convinced about who the Lord Jesus was, and declared to everyone that he was the Lamb of God, to, who was going to save the world. He then we then find him a bit later on sending his disciples to check with Jesus. Have I got that right? Is it, are, you, are you, or were we meant to be waiting for someone else? You know. So good people, strong in their faith, we can all have um, little doubts at times. But if they doubted, if Simeon and Anna ever doubted. Um, I imagine they did just what John the Baptist did um, they went back to the Lord for reassurance and um, in their case they would have gone back to the Word of God um, everything that they had understood from the Old Testament scriptures about the promises of God to remind themselves about the about the certainty of what God had promised and how surely he fulfilled his promises in the past. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we can do as well, isn't it? Whenever, if ever, we have any, any little doubts. Um, I'm guessing that's what Simeon did, actually. Was, where did this thing come about being told that he wasn't going to die before he'd seen the Messiah? You know, for me, that sounds a little bit like Simeon had gone to God. You know, is this ever going to happen? Have I misunderstood Isaiah and other prophecies? And uh, the Lord, in response to that, um, had given him this this special promise and revelation perhaps so i think the first lessons for us are about patience and how whenever doubts or uncertainties arise we should go back to god's word to remind ourselves of his promises but i think there's also perhaps a little encouragement here about how we respond to the holy spirit's prompting you know imagine if simeon and anna had both Decided that the voice in their head that day was just their imagination. When somehow in Simeon's head, um, you know, however he, the prompting of the spirit was felt by him. But look, you know, I think at the end of the day, our brains are where we assimilate thought and put together what we understand based on God's word and what we feel. Um, you know, Simeon got the idea into his head that he should go into the temple that day. And he concluded that it was the Holy Spirit prompting him and he acted on it. Anna is already in the temple. She gets the impulse to go up to that little family over there that Simeon's talking to and, say, and, and, and to get involved there as well. Imagine if both of them had just decided, ah, it's, just, it's just my imagination. They would have missed out on such an amazing opportunity, uh, wouldn't they? Maybe Simeon would have gone to his, you know, would have died. We were wondering why God never fulfilled the promise that he was going to see the Lord's Messiah. And actually, it had all been down to him not responding to the, to the Lord's prompting. Um, we have the same Holy Spirit living inside us, don't we? And um, we need to be sensitive to his prompting. And to do that, we need to learn to listen for his voice. And to do that, we need to make sure that we're spending good quality time in God's Word. Listening to the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the pages of our Bibles. And putting into practice what we learn from our Bibles in our daily lives. That's how we test and we put God to the test in a sense, don't we? Not in a, um, a doubting way, but we, we, we take him as his word. And that gives us the confidence to trust his word more um, next time. Now, if the Gospels were filled with little stories like this, um, we'd obviously know a lot more about his early years, wouldn't we? But then we get 12 years of his life squeezed into two verses. Thank you very much, Luke. You know, here we've got verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required, uh, they went home and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. 12 years. That covers 12 whole Years. Now, of course, we know from Matthew 2 that there was also a period spent in Egypt for a while. But both Matthew and Luke tell us that he spent most of his growing up time, time in the town of Nazareth. Small, obscure, backwater town, which Nathaniel go on to say, as we know, can anything good ever come out of that place. Why are the scriptures so silent? Not just about his early years, but actually about almost all of his life. The whole 30 years leading up to his public ministry, and actually, by the way, even in his public ministry, we're really only given a small number of key things. We know that's true, because that's, the, the, that's what John said at the end of his gospel, didn't he? He said that Jesus did many, many other things, and that we, we have no idea about them, because they're not written down. Why are the scriptures so silent on so much of the life of the Lord Jesus? Well, we have to remember that the scriptures, what we have, they are to teach us the important things that God wants us to know. They are not written in the style of a tabloid newspaper or magazine to entertain our curiosity with every little story that could be told about the life of of the Lord Jesus. We are given sufficient information for us to understand with faith the important things about Christ and the character of God and his purposes. All the other detail might be interesting, we might enjoy it, but it's not going to add significantly. We have to take on trust that these are the reasons why were not, um, they're not included. No doubt when he was a child, for example, he did childish things. And when he still had so much to learn, he would not have had a definitive answer for every question that was ever asked of him. And when he was still learning about his own identity and purpose, he would not have been able to share that with confidence and um, comprehensively as he did later on in his life. In other words, for most of his life, he wasn't ready to give us the definitive revelation and teaching that he would go on to in his public ministry. So whilst we we might love to know what he said to his dad in the carpenter's workshop one day, or what his mum said to him when she called him in for his tea, or what he and his friends did one day when they went to explore the outer reaches of nazareth for the first time and perhaps went a little bit further away from home than what they were really meant to or the, the kind of things that little boys do and then later on no doubt similar things as a teenager we might love to know all that stuff but really i think god is saying is we don't need we don't need to know it what we do know from Hebrews 4 and 15 is that he experienced the same kinds of challenges in his life and was exposed to the same kind of temptations as we are, yet without ever sinning. And we know from verse 40 that he became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. As I say, that verse covers 12 years of his life. 12 years of his development. 12 years of physical development, obviously. 12 years of emotional and social development. 12 years of education. 12 years of what we might call his spiritual growth and development. Knowing who he was and, and, and what he'd come to do. And I think 12 years of rediscovering that intimate relationship with his father... That he had enjoyed from eternity past. And in some way, we must conclude, thinking logically that as a baby, he would not have had the same appreciation of everything. You know, this mystery of what the Lord laid aside when he came into this world, there was clearly a process whereby he grew in his knowledge and appreciation of all of the aspects of of his life. The reason I'm limiting verse 40, by the way, to just the first 12 years, is that at the end of that period we have one event in his childhood. Just one event which shows us how his development had progressed up to that point. That's the bit that we get in the next passage. I'm going to read from verse 41. Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him, and among the Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. So I like I say, I think this is the only... Little insight we get into the in, 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 into the private life, the private ministry, the first thirty years of the Lord Jesus after the um, the initial bit around his birth that we 've been thinking about already so Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem every year for the um, for the Passover they were devout, pious uh, Jews, but this time it was different because at the age of twelve, Jewish boys are considered to be approaching adulthood, and at that point they get much more formal instruction in the, um, in, in the Jewish religion. And so it was probably the first time that they had taken him and left him for periods of the day, um, I um, imagine, um, with other boys in the temple courts listening to the um, the various religious teachers. That was what went on in the courts. There was lots of discussion and debate, but also I think it was a great opportunity for uh, for the younger um, boys to just sit and to listen, um, perhaps to formal instruction and teaching, or perhaps just listen to the debates going on between the other great teachers of the day. I don't think he was asking questions in the same way that he asked questions um, later on in his ministry when he would put people on the spot and challenge their understanding or their misunderstanding about things. And I don't think he was answering questions either in such a way that he was teaching the teachers things that they never knew before. Um, I think he was just a simple boy in a class with other boys And demonstrating remarkable spiritual progress for his age. Um, In comparison with the other boys who I imagine were there with him. Perhaps ones who came from much more privileged background. And had perhaps much more um, better informal education already. And perhaps should have been a lot more knowledgeable. I think he just stood out as the star pupil. And he was just the son of a poor family from Nazareth. Now, we know of course the story about him going uh, missing. Um, we should be kind to Murray and Joseph um, in, in, in this. Um, you know, the families traveled in, in large groups on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for companionship um, and, uh, and also for safety, security. You know, families would group together and they would go as part of you know, large, large uh, groups. And bearing in mind his age, I think it'd be quite, quite reasonable for Mary and Joseph just to assume that he was, you know, behaving responsibly somewhere with the other, um, the other boys uh, and, and and girls of their of their group. And it was only when they got to the evening of that first day, when they travelled for a whole day away from Jerusalem, that panic, um, panic would have set in. You know, um, I've never experienced it from the perspective of a parent, but I imagine any parent who's temporarily lost a child in a shopping centre or um, on, a, on a beach somewhere, <laughs> uh, I imagine they, um, you know, they would know something of the panic that set in uh, with Murray and Joseph. They had just lost God's indescribable gift. I mean, how bad were they feeling? Um, about that and they have to go all the way back to Jerusalem so that takes them another day so the anxiety would have gone all the way back I assume that they got back too late to look for him properly on that second day so sometime on the third day it says three days he was missing but sometime on the third day they find him um, in the temple maybe they actually went to the temple quite early on uh, what the Lord Jesus was addressing was their anxiety um, when, he, when, 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 when he, um, he, he spoke to them about, um, you know, why were they so, so worried. I don't think we should read what the Lord Jesus said in verse 49 as a rebuke to his mum. Uh, I think Jesus was just surprised that they didn't either go to the temple earlier or that they went to find him with a little bit less um, anxiety. But his reply does, I think, tell us uh, something else about his development. Because he refers to God as his father. And he talks about how imperative it was for him to be in his father's house. He wasn't just saying to Mary that she should have known it was likely that he would probably be in the temple because that's where they left him every day. I think he was um, talking about how, although... (laughs) only 12 years old, he already had an intimate relationship, an appreciation of his intimate relationship with his heavenly father, and that divine purposes would always take the priority in his life. The passage ends with another summary statement and Luke clearly realizing how he's got away with sticking 12 years into two verses, now he ups it even more and he sticks another 18, verses into, into, uh, 18 years into another two verses. Um, but that's what we get in verse 51 and 2. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. What do these verses tell us? Firstly, that he continued to grow. You know, we've already had that similar verse as before, but now we get it again. He continued to grow in wisdom and stature, which I, I think again shows us that there was a process of maturing. He wasn't complete at the age of 12. And secondly, I think it shows us how he managed to balance his duties towards God with um, his responsibility towards his parents and everyone else. He, he recognised that he couldn't spend his whole life studying the Old Testament scriptures and praying. Um, he had family and community responsibilities and they were also part of God's purpose for his life, just like they are for us too. So, as I said earlier, I, I'm sure we wish that we knew more about his private years Um, how he coped with various temptations, how he managed relationships with friends that didn't share his zeal for God's things, um, how he coped with family disputes, and I'm sure there were many of those, uh, normal family um, stuff, and how he found time, had the discipline to find time to pray and to study, when he had so many other responsibilities, perhaps even more so after we assume the death of his father, um, Joseph, um, and he would have been assumed as the eldest, um, the eldest son or required to really take over the responsibility as head of the household. So he, had a, he would have had a lot of responsibilities um, throughout his life. As I had to say, he didn't come in. This world with special privileges. I'm, you know, I'm the son of God, therefore I'm just going to spend my time doing religious things and everyone else can do the housework. You will have done all of those things um, as well. There's so much that we don't know. But what we do know, in addition to Hebrews 4 and 15, um, is that we have God's assessment. At the end of that period of his private life, at the end of that first 30 years we have God's assessment. And it comes in the next chapter, I'm not gonna um, um, read it straight from the chapter, but you know the words, don't you? God said, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. God assessed the normal earthly life of Jesus against all his righteous expectations of a child, of a boy, of a teenager, of a young man and it was all good. He lived a perfect life and he was ready to start his public ministry. And when God looks at us, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago uh, and just, you know, in in, in wonderment uh, how in one sense he looks at us and sees the same. Um, He sees perfection, not because we are perfect. Again, I was wondering about this, considering how imperfect I am. God sees me as perfect because he sees me in Christ. And in a sense, I see that's not just in the sacrifice of Christ, in the atonement, but he sees us in the whole life of Christ. Everything that I do wrong, Christ did it right. And he sees me in that complete end-to-end perfection. course we must never forget about the 2nd Corinthians 5 and 10 um, insight into the judgment seat of Christ. We won't be judged for our sins but we will be assessed for our lives of service one day and the big question there is will the Lord, will God be uh, pleased with our development or will he be disappointed? It would be great wouldn't it if he was able to say you are my child and you I am well pleased. But one final thought about the development of the Lord Jesus. Was it complete then? Was it complete at that baptism when he said to John, we need to fulfil all righteousness and God made that wonderful declaration? Was that it? Was that his graduation? Was he finally complete? Was all the development done? No, I, I I don't think so. Because after that, we know we had his temptations in the wilderness, which seemed to be... A scale of temptation, more than anything that he'd experienced uh, previously. Um, We have his rejection in Nazareth, that town where he'd grown up, that community he'd served, that place of friendship and belonging that he'd had. And they took offense at him and wanted to kill him. His family. I imagine I said before no doubt there were many family disputes especially as his other siblings um, got wind of the fact that he was the chosen one, the special one. You can just imagine the sarcasm in their voice when they referred to him in, the, in these terms but we know later on it seemed to get even worse as he went into his public ministry. You know scripture says even his own brothers did not believe on him. Now that may have been true for the whole of his life but that was in the context of them saying that he should go to a place where it was well known his life would be in danger. So there was a sense of rejection from his own family. And of course, the religious community. He was no longer the bright, young student. He was the one to be undermined. He was the one to be challenged. He was the one to be be done away with. So I think there were a lot more experiences that he experienced during his public life, which all added to that... That sense of growing and development um, throughout the whole of his his ministry, and uh, I'm going to just finish um, with just a couple of verses, which are right at the other end, and in a sense, are kind of outside my scope. I'm sure we'll look at these in more detail if we continue this series in the Lord's uh, on the Lord's life. But when we get right, to, if we go to John chapter thirteen, you don't need to turn with me, Brian And I've mentioned this um, before, but it really just strikes me that in the upper room, in John chapter 13 at the beginning, it says, it was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his father. And verse three, it says, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In a sense, although it was clear from other things that he said earlier in his teaching, he knew these things already. But it does just seem to me that in the upper room, in those hours before he went to the cross, there was a sense of everything coming together. Uh, the weight. Of what he was going to go and do, but the whole of the context and also what would follow. It was seen that, the, that, that everything that he needed to know all came together in those verses and, I, and, and, I, I just, and the reason why I've spoken on this verse before um, is actually not so much in the context of his developments but actually in the context of what he then did. Because such knowledge didn't fill him with pride or arrogance far from it. But in the true revelation of the character of God, it prompted an act of absolute humility when he got down and washed his disciples' feet. So in a sense, for me, that was the accumulation of all of his developing throughout his life. But there's one more thing, and I'm just going to go back to Luke, because I think there was one more test. One more test um, which all of that development equipped him for. And we might say, well, the ultimate test was on the cross. But no, I think the ultimate test was just before the cross. I think it was when he made the final confirmatory statement that he was going to go to the cross. And we find that in Luke chapter two, verse 41, where it says he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. His knowledge of who he was, his knowledge of what was about to happen, his knowledge of why he was going to do it, and not just a knowledge, but a, an absolute synchronisation of his will with his Father's will, completely in tune. If ever there was a, a, a confirmation that the Lord uh, and his Father were totally connected in their determination for him to do what he'd come to do, I think it's in that, that lovely little verse. It does seem strange and I appreciate that I'm walking on holy ground um, in talking about the development of the Lord Jesus. I hope you haven't taken anything that I've said um, about his, um, what we must logically conclude. If he developed, there must have been a time before he developed. There must have been time of, times of lack of knowledge, lack of um, appreciation of his identity and his purpose. Um, that's the logical conclusion if we talk about his, his, uh, his development. And if you think about what he must have known as a baby, it, it is logical that he developed in that way, in a normal sort of a way. Um, it does seem strange to think about the eternal Son of God being in any way incomplete at any point of his life. But I think that's what the scriptures show us, that he did need to learn, he did need to grow, he did need to develop. God didn't just come into our world, he became human and he lived a life which in many ways is very different from us, but in many ways is also quite similar, uh, or could be similar if we follow his example. So we'll leave it there and we'll close in prayer.